Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Rachel Braun Sharon. Rachel is an established authority on leadership, entrepreneurship, and women's health. A passion for women's health has formed the backbone of her career. Rachel is a fearless advocate and market maker in the multi-billion dollar global women's sexual health marketplace. Rachel published Orgasmic Leadership, profiting from the coming surge in female health and wellness in May 2018. She's also featured her work in women's health and leadership on ABC News, CBS, MSNBC, New York Times, Oprah Radio, and many more channels. She's also a board member for Illumai and advisory board member at Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, the Fuqua School of Business. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to our Woman to Woman podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Let's start with your childhood. How was your childhood? Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Michigan. So my husband always laughs when I start there because there's nothing about me that seems anything but Northeast. So when I say I was born in Michigan, it doesn't quite fit, but I lived in Michigan for my first six years. And then I was raised in a suburb of New York City um, in New Jersey. And I have my, my parents, they met when they were 12 and 13 in summer camp, and they were married to the day my father died five and a half years ago. And I have one older sister who is four years older than I am. It's funny. I remember when I was having my first child, you had to go to this program at the hospital to learn, you know, about how you're going to parent. It was this mandatory thing. They asked the question to all the participants, all the couples who were there saying, what do you remember about your childhood? And what I remember is a lot of laughter. My father was literally the funniest person on the planet. And every single day, we quote, we call them Grampyisms, something that he said that was funny or insightful or inspiring or ironic, very involved parents. You know, I did all kinds of sports, was a good student, very relatively run of the mill. So it looks like your father was a big influence on your life. Huge. Literally, whenever I've written a lot about him and I dedicated my book to him and the expression I use is his is the voice that I hear in my head. I can hear him saying how I should behave in certain situations. And I feel like his example was an example for everything, how to love, how to be a family member, how to be a parent, how to be a professional, how to balance your responsibilities. And I'm not sure I'm always doing it with as much grace as he did, but that is really what I think of. And he was the kind of person who everybody who met him felt like he had a positive impact on their lives. Well, he had this amazing quality that you felt like you were the only person in the room, feel seen and heard. My mom was a therapist, so we spent a lot of time talking about feelings. My parents, there was no such thing as helicopter parents, but they were extremely involved and supportive, you know, in everything I did. When I wanted to figure skate, they took me there. When I wanted to do whatever sport it was, when I needed help practicing softball, my dad would throw a ball with me for a hundred hours in the, in the backyard. There's this movie Parenthood that is old and was more recently a TV series. And there's a scene where I believe it's Steve Martin's son. I have so many memories of my parents really supporting me. I am one of two girls and I never was told anything other than you can do or be whatever you want. There weren't limitations. Go after whatever opportunities you want, make the most of them because I was always extremely and still am extremely self-motivated. That's a rare quality. You mentioned the book that you have written 
Let's talk a little bit about your book. So how did that book come about? It's interesting. So basically, I've, I've been working in women's sexual um, and reproductive health for a long time. There just are a lot of funny stories when you work in the space and you're in rooms where you're talking about vaginas and orgasms and the clitoris and, you know, water-based lubricants and whatever it is. And not a lot of people spend their business days talking about that. And so every time I would talk or give a presentation, oftentimes people would say, you know, there's a book in you. And I had at that point, I always loved to do creative writing. By the time I got to the point of really working on the book, I'd already written and published dozens of articles, three, four dozen articles on Huffington Post and on Inc. and in other in Forbes and other places. So I knew that I liked to write. Um, I was sitting at an event with a woman who I hadn't met before, who I just had one of those like brain crushes on. She was so smart. I just wanted to listen to her talk. We were in totally different businesses and we're talking a little bit about what we do. And she said, Rachel, you know, everybody at this point, I was doing a lot of speaking on entrepreneurship and leadership. And she says, you know, Rachel, everybody talks about leadership and entrepreneurship and it's boring. You should talk about it in the context of women's health. You, you know, talk about it in the categories that you focus on, call it orgasmic leadership. And I said, Karen, I love that idea. It's the greatest name I've ever heard. But people in corporate America are not advertising that someone's coming to talk about orgasmic leadership. And I'm not sure what to do with it yet, but I always kept it in the back of my mind. And then a particular day, maybe a year later, I don't even know, I was sitting in a chair, literally doing nothing, which is also unusual for me. And all of a sudden it came to me that orgasmic leadership was the name of my book. And I didn't know how it was going to come to fruition. But what I did is I started, I wrote a discussion guide and I reached out to the five or 10 leaders and thinkers and academics and investors the first 10 probably that I had the closest relationship with and, and asked them if they would sit for a structured interview. And by the time I was done, I had over three dozen and that really formed the foundation for the book. And the full title is Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. And it's really a business book focused on how people in this space, whether they're academics, healthcare practitioners, entrepreneurs, or investors, how they're capitalizing on existing trends to drive their businesses and drive the conversation in this space. So the writing process itself was really fun. What I was surprised by is it took the same amount of time to write the book. And I, you know, I worked with an editor as it did to do all the other stuff, you know, come up with the cover art and get it registered and, you know, make sure it was proofread and copywritten and everything was referenced and sourced a million times. And then the book was released May, 2018. Congratulations. That's such an accomplishment. It really does feel like a big accomplishment, I have to say. And I have a good friend who, you know, normally I would describe it. If someone said to me, I would say I wrote a book and my friend says, no, you're an author, which is a very different positioning. So I try to get used to the idea of saying that I'm an author. You, you are an author, a very well accomplished author at that. Thank you. So growing up, what were you looking to do in life? I originally thought I was going to be a psychologist. You know, I always say this, no one wakes up, I don't think. Most people don't say, oh, I've always wanted to be in the vagina business, you know? <laughs> it wasn't as if I dreamed about being in this space. But I dreamed about, I thought I would be a psychologist because I really liked the inner workings and, you know, the complex communication and untangling, detangling relationships and complicated situations. I studied psychology in college. I went to Duke undergrad. I studied psychology 
and human development, which was the intersection of sociology, biology, and psychology. As part of my internship to, to graduate with that major, I had to work in a mental hospital and it takes a particular kind of person. And I hadn't really thought through what that looks like. You know, you're not just sitting in an office when people tell you their problems, like some of this stuff is life-threatening, some of it is life-changing. So I don't think I realized the seriousness of it. And after I realized I didn't want to be a psychologist, I figured, well, my dad's always been in business. I like math. I like to write. I'll go into business. I don't think even then I had a very clear clear vision. You know, oftentimes I speak to students and I show this graphic where, you know, I show my graduation picture where I'm standing there with my parents and I show what I thought was going to be a straight line. You know, you have a family, you build a career. And then I, the next chart just has a squiggly line where you see all the places life actually takes you. Like whether you experience illness or sadness or loss, you know, get fired or get hired by the wrong people or have to relocate, you know, it's just not a straight line. So I think I felt like I wanted to be in business. And the first time I remember thinking of it, I remember saying out loud, I want to run a division of Johnson and Johnson, which strikes me always. I never said I want to run Johnson and Johnson. At that time, I said, I want to run a division of Johnson and Johnson, which I think is interesting looking back. And ultimately my first job, I went to Stanford for business school. And my first job out of business school was working for Johnson and Johnson. And it turns out over the course of my career, I worked with or for or at <laughs> Johnson and Johnson for 20 years. So I was an employee or I was a service provider, but it was a really, really long and important relationship with that company, with the people that I met there, with the foundational skills I learned there. So I'm not running a division, but I feel like I got so much out of my relationship with that company. That is so interesting though. Like you actually had a company in mind. Was that because you knew people in that company or was that something because you were tracking that company? Like why Johnson & Johnson? It just seemed iconic. You know, I'd heard about the stories about the Tylenol tamperings and, you know, unbeknownst to me, I was put on the Tylenol business and I did have the opportunity to actually go to business schools with my boss where we were recruiting MBA students and teach the story, which was so instrumental to how the division that I was in worked. You know, I liked the idea that it was healthcare, although at that time, you know, it's pain relief. It's, it's not healthcare the way I define it now. Uh, and I liked the idea of being in a team and it had a great reputation and brands that everybody on earth had in their homes. At the time, the, the CEO who had gotten them through the first tampering incident was considered a legend in how to manage corporate crises. So I think it was a combination of those things that interested me. So what happened afterwards? So how did you get into the women's health arena? When I left J&J, I went to a consulting company who was interested in me because of my J&J experience, because their primary client was Johnson & Johnson. So it just kept continuing. Probably a year into it, I was a working mom with um, an infant and there were two projects that I could have been staffed on. And one was in New Jersey. I was living in Connecticut at the time. And the other was in Brussels. And I remember my husband and I having this conversation, you know, if you go back to work, you, I mean, I knew I was going back to work, you have to be all in. 
And I didn't ask to be on the project in Brussels, but that was the one that I was staffed on, which meant that uh, when I came back from maternity leave, I went to Brussels for one week a month for six or seven months. At the end of that, I remember thinking if they're paying me, if they were paying me $10 million, which I can promise you they weren't, the pain is not worth the reward. Joined a two-person partnership that was doing the same kind of work, strategy consulting focused on top-line growth. I worked with my business partner for 20 years and we literally did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of projects focused around growth, innovation, revenue generation, positioning, messaging. A venture capitalist had to be a business plan with a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. And this venture capitalist had never given me a business plan before this. And he said, this isn't for me, but maybe you and Mary, my business partner, maybe you guys want to look into this. Very long story short, ultimately, the primary asset of the company became available. We raised venture capital. We bought it. We hired people. We built a company. We relocated it from the South to the Northeast. We got some economic development aid from the state of New Jersey. And we built this company around this product that was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts. And as I said, was clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction. And when we sold the company, we were in 2000 Walmarts. A lot of it was some of the most fun I've had in my life. A lot of it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life. But I realized when we exited that I really did like two aspects of it that I wasn't getting in the large company consulting, which was the entrepreneurial ability to make things happen in a short period of time and, and taking risks. And I really love being in the space of women's sexual and reproductive health. And it turns out for whatever reason, I had no problem talking about any of these things and actually enjoyed creating the conversation. So, so for the last 14 years, I've been focused exclusively on women's sexual and reproductive health. And for the last eight, since we sold that company, working with a series of companies in the range from menstruation to menopause, doing the same kind of work, which is helping them drive top line growth. But one of the things I found that was an advantage for me was that I'd worked in and for small companies and run small companies, and I'd worked in and with large companies. The idea of putting myself in the middle between the entrepreneurs and the corporate partners seemed like a really unique spot for me. So I spend a lot of my time building those partnerships with larger companies, larger um, consumer products companies, healthcare companies, device companies who are looking externally for innovation. And we joke all the time that you know, women's health is an overnight sensation that's been centuries in the making, but right now it feels like our time has come. It's a lot of people uh, pushing this boulder uphill and this rising tide has been raising all the boats, but today it feels like a different world than the world that I entered when I was starting this space. There's more companies, there are more investors, there are more success stories, there are more corporate partners. So I, I just had finished an article that I just published called Femtech is on Fire, finally, because it really is, if you look today and you see all the articles about menopause and you see all the companies getting financed, you wouldn't have believed where we even were five years ago. Incredibly important topic and area. And to your point, finally, it's getting the attention it deserves. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about COVID, you know, as hard as it was, one of the positives, as we saw how differently men and women responded to COVID was this growing awareness that humans respond differently. People who are born biologically female respond differently than people who are born biologically male. They, there's some conditions that affect them only, meaning 
If you don't have a uterus or ovaries, you can't have any conditions associated with those. Or they affect women primarily, like breast cancer. It's not that there aren't men who suffer, but the primary patient in, in breast cancer is um, way more often than not the woman. And then conditions that affect women differently which is almost everything. So the way women have experienced symptoms of heart disease or even our reaction to COVID or how we respond differently to a cholesterol lowering drug. It's created this more open conversation. And the other positive impact in this very scary situation is that we're all now starting to have the conversation that I think we needed to have, which is much more holistic. And by that, I mean, woman you know, she's not just a menstruator. She's not just trying to get pregnant or not trying to get pregnant. You can't look at her sexual health without thinking about her mental health. You can't look at cardiac health without looking at bone health. So looking at the complexities and the interactions of all the systems, that's now a conversation we're having, as opposed to you have this need, I'm going to sell you X product. You have been on both sides, as you said, you know, you have worked in corporate world, you've been a consultant and you've been an entrepreneur. So you kind of have done it all. Which one do you think was most challenging for you and why? I would say being an entrepreneur is more challenging because you're doing it often without a safety net. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like walking a tightrope. I felt like there was a lot of, um, there are a lot of layers and a lot of soft places to fall in a corporation. And then when you're consulting to these corporations, we could generally as a boutique move faster than they could, but we're still working in the same space with the same language. I feel like the combination of being an entrepreneur and focusing in this space is you're often charting new ground, you know, pushing boundaries and selling hard and, and trying to create the conversation and trying to get people to understand how common some of the conditions that we're talking about are, you know, I can go into any room and say 43% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties at some point in their life, close to 50% of pregnancies every year in the US are mistimed or unplanned. A third of women never have an orgasm, 33% have incontinence symptoms, you know, like we're talking about big, big stuff that have have real implications, you know, that wasn't a conversation that I was having myself, um, ever, you know, we were always trying to create this dialogue. But there are so many people in the space trying to drive that forward and create solutions, help build these companies. A lot of that feeling of being on the tightrope over the past couple of years has dissipated, but it's an entirely new world. We always joke when we started our company, when we started the women's health company, I was um, VP of operations, which I was elected to because I had a Costco car. You know, so I was in charge of all the supplies or I was B VP of, of travel because, you know, I like making plane reservations, but you're literally tasked with every part of your brain and every bit of energy you have. It's a, it's a race of physical endurance, emotional endurance, fiscal endurance. Uh, so it just requires an enormous amount of, of effort. So during this entire process, did you have sponsors or mentors that really helped you guide your thinking and your approach? Uh, for sure. As I said before, my dad was always my... Um, in the storm and my voice of reason, my business partner who I worked with for 20 years was also a great source of support, is 13 years older than I am. So also was a partner and a mentor. And during the course of running this business, I met a woman who was probably 30 years older than I am. And sadly, she, she passed away in the last couple of years. When I saw her, 
she ran a PR firm. What I saw was a model I had never seen before, which, a, which was a woman who could so elegantly straddle the balance between personal relationships and professional relationships. You know, and it's a bit of a stereotype that men don't draw those same lines, but she was able to really navigate so that her friends became her clients and her clients became her friends. And she did it with elegance and humor. And I remember saying to her, we became very, very dear friends. And I remember saying to her, I wish I had met you earlier in my career because I could have you know, avoided a few times that I tripped over myself where my own tongue or banged my head into a wall because she had a style that made sense to me and importantly was so effective in terms of building her business and building relationship. You also mentioned, you know, during your career, you had to make some tough choices because you just had a baby. So you have two kids. How did that work-life balance work for you? You have to have a village. I mean, there's no question you have to have a village. My mom was helpful. You know, we had friends, my, my husband, extended family, because you can't do that life and travel without some infrastructure in place. But what's funny is now that they're grown and out of the house and they're both in their 20s, I can't even remember how I did it. Like I don't remember how I was in 12 places at the same time. You know, since COVID, since COVID, I really haven't done too much business travel, but I used to travel, you know, at least one week a month. You know, I was somewhere on a plane, on a train somewhere and still trying to get home for, you know, everything. And I remember I was speaking to a group of students in California and it was, I went to Duke undergrad and this was a Duke program in San Francisco. The kids, I mean, they are young enough to be my kids said to me, um, do you have work family balance? Which I joke is not even a thing because it's not attainable. It's like, you know, it's not, it's not even something you can get to. There's no finish line. And I said, well, I'm here today speaking to you. I'm taking the red eye home and I'll go from the red eye so that I can go to my daughter's, you know, pre-prom party. If that's work-life balance, I have it, you know, but I said, I'm too old at this point to be taking a red eye. So I don't know how much balance it is, but this idea of always needing to be in two places, I don't think I realized it. You know, I was partially holding my breath for 18 years because there's so many things you're trying to do. So many things I was trying to do and you don't want to let another shoe drop. And you don't want to let your kids down or your partner down or your family down. So there's a lot of prioritization, a lot of having to forgive yourself when you can't do it quite as well as you want to. It's hard. You know, I don't know who's done it, who says it isn't. There are things that make it better or worse, you know, whether you have illness that you're dealing with personally or financial pressure or challenges with children, you know, every single thing can send this delicate balance out of whack. That is so true. It is a delicate balance. It's a very fine line. I know one or two things which I really live by even now. You do the best you can every day. And I have some fundamental principles in terms of how I live my life. I do what I say I'm going to do. I mean what I say and say what I mean. Make decisions and choices and build relationships off a core set of principles. Uh, working with the highest integrity of being moral. And I'm not saying I'm, I came up with these ideas. If you lie or cheat, I'm not interested. And unfortunately, I think everybody, but I'll speak for myself, has come across people who have different ethical standards than they do in the course of their career. And I always knew that my family uh, was my most important responsibility. I remember when I was running my first startup, an investor said to me, like, this stuff is really hard. It's like one of your kids. And I thought to myself, 
I, I can see that it's quite different from a kid. It's not that I wasn't passionate about it or didn't care about it or didn't stay awake worrying about it. But the emotional involvement is just different when it's for me, from your children on a business. And that sort of always allowed me, as I say, to keep the wheels on the wagon. And some days I couldn't even find the wagon. And I would say the biggest lesson I got from my dad is literally never lose your sense of humor. Humor and the ability to laugh uh, has saved me um, from a lot of hard times. So in during the course of your career, you must have worked with a lot of women. You must have met a lot of women. What do you think holds us back? Wow, it's such a it's such a big question. And I think it's different for every person. One thing I would say is fear of failure. So I have this expression, um, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And one of the things I learned working so long is that you survive when you fail. You know, you get up the next day, you can take breaths, you know, the sun still rises. You know, I probably failed five times already today, but you have a different reaction to it. And I don't know if you've ever uh, followed figure skating, but Scott Hamilton is this Olympic champion, figure skater, an American. He, you know, won world championships, he won gold medals, and he's a multiple time cancer survivor. And one year at the Olympics, he had always been the commentator and they sort of replaced him with two younger people. And the interviewer asked him, you know, how do you feel about this? Do you feel like you're being put out to pasture? You know, what is, is this your career over? And he said the most amazing thing, and I'm, I won't get the number exactly right. He said, in my career in figure skating, I fell down 41,600 times, but more important is I got up 41,600 times. And that just always stuck with me that it so much matters what you do with the failure or with the challenge or, or after it, that really speaks to who you are. I, the other comments, Brene Brown is a you know famous, she gave one of the most watched TED Talks. She's an author. She has a million degrees. And she wrote this book called Daring Greatly. And there was something in it that really had an impact on me. And this was just maybe in the past two years. And I'm paraphrasing, but she said, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not trying hard enough. And so now every time I have a feeling in my stomach or in my head, or I'm nervous or concerned. And now instead of saying, oh, that doesn't feel good. I say, oh, I'm doing something right. This is how it's supposed to feel. And you sort of just put that, turn that feeling upside down. And instead of feeling any kind of vulnerability, you turn it into a strength. Yeah. It's such a mindset shift. Yeah. In closing, what would you like our listeners to know? You know, there's not one path. Uh, you have to figure out what's going to work for you. You have to make decisions in the context of your life. You know, people always say, oh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, just go for it. Well, if you have overwhelming medical bills and care that you need to be on health insurance and you need to have a regular salary, maybe it's not the right time to be an entrepreneur. So you have to look at it in the context of your life. I think you have to have a clear awareness of what you're good at and what you enjoy, but most importantly, the intersection of those. So when I'm working with students or, you know, doing any mentorship, one of the first things I do, because women do this, that women find this generally harder to do than men. And again, that's a big stereotype is I want you to only write the things that you're good at, you know, if we're talking about professionally, and then I want you to write the things you like. And then I want you to choose the ones that are in the middle, because just because you're good at it doesn't mean you like it. And just because you like it doesn't mean you're good at it. But the things that are in the middle are the assets that you have, you know, to build a career. And I would also add to that personal, professional relationships, how you treat people, how you interact, how people trust you, what people expect from you is the most important business asset you can have. 
which is your name and your reputation. And when you think you're making a bad choice, do everything you can not to make it because I've always found at this point that if I think it was wrong, it usually proves to be wrong. If I have a bad feeling about something, it usually proves to be wrong. And then from finally, from a skill set, I would say, learn how to sell because ultimately every aspect of business is selling. You're either selling your idea or selling your book or selling your product or selling your service or selling that people should want to work for you. Um, I think you have to learn to negotiate and enjoy it. I feel a little bit like it's an aerobic sport. I actually like it. Uh, and you have to be able to communicate whether it's, I think it should be both written and oral. And I know oral communication is so different. I wouldn't consider text communication, but I think those are really, really important skills that anybody can use and anybody needs regardless of the path that you're taking. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was great to meet you. And I think what you're doing with this podcast is excellent and will really help a lot of your listeners.